heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm. And we have just a really exciting guest to talk with us tonight. There have been so many questions coming in from my patients and I'm sure for doctors across the country following the stunning announcement that the CDC was recommending the COVID vaccines to be given to pregnant women. For our audience to know, and many of you probably already do because you pretty common sense people, we've never given pregnant women experimental drugs or agents, biological agents like a vaccine, particularly when we have very little safety data. And in addition to that, anyone who's ever been through a pregnancy with a family member knows that doctors are always, always very cautious about the medications that they will prescribe for pregnant women because we understand there is risk. There's risk to the mother and there's risk to the developing baby. So this was a shock to most of us in medicine and to many future parents across America when suddenly on the new experimental vaccines with two months of safety data and total exclusion of pregnant women in the clinical trials, Suddenly, the CDC has decided, oh, it's okay. Go ahead and, and get your vaccine, mom-to-be. And, and by the way, it may even protect your baby, too. We don't know any of that. And this, this was just shocking. And I've had so many questions from my own patients in my practice and so many people in terms of social media reaching out and asking questions. I decided that the voice of a nation needed to have a guest expert trained, fellowship trained in maternal fetal medicine to talk about these issues and explain how we normally do things and what are the departures from our normal routine and our normal medical ethics and clinical practice, even regulations in this new experimental emergency use vaccine rollout. And that is important because if we are on America Out Loud, standing for truth, standing for reason, common sense, and education that is balanced and based in good science, as as we discuss medicine, for example, and as we are looking at the founding principles of America, and as we are looking at How do we preserve our core values, which include our family? And it includes protecting the most vulnerable among us, our children and our children to be. Babies in the womb 
have no voice. We are their voice. We are the ones who must get loud and stand for what is right to protect the developing baby, the family, the children of our country. They are our future and it's our duty to protect them. So with that said, I want to introduce you to my colleague, Richard Blumrick, who is a physician, obstetrician. He is a maternal fetal medicine specialist with his specialty training, which is beyond medical school and residency. This fellowship in maternal fetal medicine was at Duke University, one of the top programs in the country. He did his OBGYN residency in Midtown Manhattan Medical School at Stony Brook and his undergraduate work at Columbia University. He specializes in treating women who have medical conditions that affect their risk for pregnancy who then become pregnant, as well as treating healthy women who have medical complications while pregnant and he addresses the fetal baby issues that can arise from the medical diseases or the drugs used to treat them. He has spent the last 20 years actively treating complicated pregnant patients and training future OBGYN residents, and he's now the chairman of the OBGYN department at a large community hospital in a big city in the Southwest. Welcome, Dr. Blumrick. We are so grateful to have you come and help us make sense of things that people are really struggling with right now about how can this be safe for pregnant women. Pleasure to be here, Dr. Lee. I just want to say that I'm not here representing any institution or any medical society, but here as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, to be an advocate for patients and help them understand medical logic of the processes involving COVID and various treatments and vaccines and how it may affect them in their pregnancy. Well, I'm just grateful that you're willing to do that. I had a fascinating discussion with Dr. Blumwork last night when we were talking about him doing this and how what was going on and why I thought it was so important. And he just had such eloquent but simple explanations that made sense that everyone can understand. So this won't be a high-tech medical discussion. This is going to be the way that Dr. Blumrick talks to his own patients when a couple comes in in an early pregnancy and he's in the role of discussing with them and answering their questions. So I, I think we really should start with the, the whole point about, first of all, let's look at two different aspects. How does COVID itself potentially affect pregnancy? And then the other side of that coin that we definitely need to spend time on is how does the COVID vaccine potentially affect pregnancy and the developing baby as well as risk to the mother? And how is the COVID vaccine different from others that we have typically used? Okay, well, COVID is 
a type of virus that is typically responsible as a general virus as the common cold. This version is a more pathological version. It's basically three times more pathologic than the common flu typically. Um, but in pregnancy, pregnant women don't do any worse than the general population or when they're not pregnant if they get COVID. So reproductive age women, age 14 to 50, have a 99.97% chance of surviving without any treatment if they get COVID in or outside of pregnancy. This is different than influenza. So having the flu, and we've all had the flu, we get sick and cough and achy painy, uh, stay inside for a week or so, and then you typically get better. But if you get the flu when you're pregnant, there's a much worse course for mom. They can get severe respiratory distress and go into the ICU and die from pneumonia as a young, healthy woman who happens to get pregnant. So influenza in pregnancy is a severe condition. COVID in pregnancy amazingly is not worse. It's, it's tip, most women that have a positive COVID test have no symptoms. Uh, more of them ha have, uh, or some of, them, some of them then may have mild symptoms, cough, little malaise, loss of uh, taste and smell. Fewer of them would get sick and some get really sick. Now, interestingly, there are at-risk groups. So again, when you talk of pregnancy, that could be anyone 15 years old to 50 years old. So in that range, there are different populations and different populations with predisposing medical conditions may do worse. For instance, Native Americans tend to do much worse if they get natural COVID than Caucasians do or even Asians do. Uh, morbidly obese patients do worse. Patients with chronic lung disease, and I don't mean just asthma, but really severe lung disease, that's chronic. Chronic renal or hepatic disease, bad diabetes, those tend to have a worse course. But most everybody else uh, will get through COVID without a problem. Now, here's another you know, interesting- I'm gonna just stop you for a second there. Dr. Blumrick, because that is not the media narrative because so many of the younger women in my practice have commented to me, well, I really can't take the risk of getting COVID if, the, if I'm pregnant because I may die, I may get really sick, I may end up in the ICU and there has been a general misunderstanding, I think, and perhaps some of that is by design to drive people to get the vaccine. Perhaps some of it is just simply misinformed. But, but there is too big a perception in, in the public arena that somehow COVID is more serious in pregnant women. And I, no. I really yeah, think that, it's important. That's that you dispelled that myth. Yeah, now it, you can really get sick and you can die with COVID. I, I don't want to 
pretend it is a real disease, it is a real virus, you can die from it. And uh, that can happen. So it's important to get early treatment. You don't wait till you're on death's door and then show up to be treated either. But we've had plenty of people uh, that are pregnant that have had COVID and they don't do worse than, than they would if they weren't pregnant. So that doesn't appear to be an increase in the pathology being pregnant. The physiologic state of pregnancy does not appear to worsen the condition if you get COVID. But here's another important fact is that um, the placenta is a great barrier to most pathogens. Most viruses and bacteria don't get to the fetus. There are very few that do. Zika virus is one that can cross and give calcifications and small head to the to babies. Parvovirus can, which can destroy red blood cells and, and lead to very sick babies that can even die in utero. Um, uh, CMV can, um, rubella certainly can, uh, and bacterial-wise, it would be syphilis and listeria. But outside of that, most other pathogens don't get through. And COVID is one of those that don't get through. And we have pretty good evidence on that because we have a lot of pregnant women that have had COVID and we ultrasound them all the time, every month, looking to see if we see features or calcifications or any signs of COVID, none. They've looked at studies of preterm delivery, uh, fetal loss, miscarriages, birth defects, no increase, no change at all. Um, They've even looked at babies whose moms were hospitalized with severe COVID pneumonia. And they tested those kids and they're all negative, 100%. So that's pretty good evidence to show that the COVID virus does not cross the placenta. So this is important in evaluating risks and benefits whenever you do a treatment. Because a prudent physician should always evaluate. And this is a daily thing of what I do every day. People have medical conditions, they need, they have treatments, they wanna know how safe is it in pregnancy, what risks are there. And it could be difficult because pregnant women are excluded from almost all uh, medical trials. So we have limited information on, on many drugs, but that's always a risk of saying, okay, well, what if you don't take the drug? What's the consequence to the baby or you versus if you do take the drug and how much risk would we assume is, is tolerable? But here in this condition, we know that COVID won't affect the baby. It won't affect the pregnancy. Yes, it can if you get severe pneumonia and just like any other pneumonia, community acquired pneumonia, and uh, that's how it would affect the pregnancy, but it doesn't seem to be worse. Well, I think that's very encouraging news for our listeners. And we, we all, I think by now, understand that the critical issue to avoid critical illness with COVID is early treatment. And all of us on the front yes. line physicians are treating in the first five to seven days of symptoms. And then it is at that point, it is a viral illness. If you wait to eight, 
10, 14 days into the illness, then you're dealing with a severe inflammatory illness that increases the risk of cytokine storm and damaging critical organs. And it becomes a blood clotting disorder as well. And people are dying at that point of blood clots. So the early treatment is critical. And thank you for making that point. I agree hundred percent. Well, what about the, the question? I, I think you've commented pretty effectively that natural COVID really doesn't cause a problem for the fetus because the baby, because the COVID virus doesn't cross the placenta. So that makes it even more upsetting when I hear CDC officials and other public health officials and Dr. Fauci making comments along the lines of, well, you need to do the vaccine during pregnancy with no safety data to protect your baby. So what would be the consequence to the baby if the mother did get the vaccine during pregnancy? So that's a good question. And here are my concerns. So people, I think a main error that people make are that when you use the word vaccine, they assume that it's like other vaccines. Well, we've had vaccines to go to school. Uh, You do get vaccines in pregnancy. And it is recommended to get a flu vaccine when you are pregnant because it's so much more lethal if you acquire influenza when you're pregnant. But the flu vaccine are proteins. They're not a live virus, as you know. They've taken the latest strain, they destroy it and smash it and have a bunch of these viral proteins that they inject you in with, and your body recognizes these are foreign proteins and makes antibodies against those proteins so that you become immune. So if you do get influenza, you already have these antibodies against it. Now, those protein vaccines don't cross the placenta either. So the baby gets no exposure to that, but gets the benefit of mom developing an immunity with the IgG antibodies, which are actively transported across the placenta, and the baby has a passive immunity. So it's born and into an environment and now has antibodies to that and all the other pathogens that mom has been exposed to in her whole life. So all that array of antibodies that she's accumulated, that whole armory, cross the placenta and give this kid a passive immunity. So when it's born with a very immature immune system, it's vulnerable to everything. It has the maternal antibodies there to help it. And if you breastfeed, you can prolong that exposure by in the breast milk giving antibodies. So that's how influenza vaccines are good in pregnancy. And I advocate pregnant women do get that. Whooping cough is another serious problem that is devastating to really young kids, lethal, but doesn't do anything to older kids and adults. So that's another one that's a bacteria and we've taken proteins from that. It's a pertussis bacteria and they've inoculated through that. Those proteins, again, don't cross the placenta. So kid gets no exposure but gets the benefit of mom's antibodies crossing. So when it is born and it is vulnerable to to whooping cough, it's immune. 
And that's beautiful. And I think people assume, well, yeah, it's good to vaccinate against those. Here we got COVID. Boy, that seems so devastating. Let's get those pregnant women vaccinated too. But here's the big difference. The, the COVID vaccines, the ones available, use a lipid vector. So what that means is that they've had a lipid sphere that delivers messenger RNA. So the thought process that they've had in making these COVID vaccines is they've looked at these viral proteins and go, okay, uh, out of all of these ones, which generate the biggest immune response in a person? And it happened to be this thing we'll call the spike protein. So that, if you're exposed to that, generates a more vigorous immune response than the other proteins. So they determined to say, okay, well, let's sequence that, and then we can make a messenger RNA that'll code for that very protein, encase it in a lipid sphere that will blend with the cell membranes, injecting it into the cell, and that that messenger RNA will run off the cellular ribosomes to make billions of these spike proteins that will then stick out and pop out of the cell membrane where our immune system comes by and sees all these billions of spike proteins and will make a vigorous immune response to that. So that's the idea behind it. But the problem when you talk about pregnancy is that those lipids will cross the placenta. And I know this because I've done gene therapy research 20 years ago in my fellowship at Duke, where I was able to transfect fetal cells through amniotic fluid using these very lipid spheres. So <clears throat> that's a big problem because a fetus has no immunity while it's a fetus. None, it has almost none. And that's a problem otherwise in obstetrics because if bacteria get up through the vagina and into that amniotic sac, the kid has no prayer of mounting any immune response. It's warm, there's food, it's a perfect environment to, to grow and flourish and it becomes an overwhelming infection. It's not until later in the third trimester where the kid starts to develop a rudimentary immune system, which basically still can't uh, fight off a pathogen, but it's enough to signal mom to say, hey, there's an infection in here. And then she mounts a immune response and has fevers and contractions and will go into preterm labor to expel an infected fetus. So <clears throat> here you now are with the vaccine, transferring all these uh, lipid spheres to cross the placenta, infect fetal cells which are metabolically very active and will generate billions and billions of these spike proteins, but there's no immune system to read them and make antibodies. And that kid is hidden from mom's immune system. So the question is what happens to all these viral spike proteins that are sticking out of the kid's cells? And that's a concern to me in a number of ways. One, is that in a fetus, you start with an egg and a sperm and a zygote, and you have that divides to two and four and eight and 16 and 64, and before you have just a big ball of cells. So how do you get a kid out of that? Well, what happens is that the outer cells, when can they contact the mom's lining, recognize those proteins and undergo a change, which will start differentiating uh, 
And then cells next to them undergo a change and cells next to them undergo a change by reading these surface proteins in a very orchestrated pattern where certain proteins get expressed and then they get not expressed. They need to happen at a certain time at a certain place so that cells know how to migrate and form neural pathways. How does your brain know to reach down to your big toe with your nerve cell? It does it by reading these surface proteins like, like Stevie Wonder does reading Braille and runs down to know where it goes. So what my question is, so if you have billions of these viral spike proteins sticking out of cells, it seems potentially that that could disrupt that pattern and you may have developmental problems, which you may not see. We don't diagnose autism typically till a child is four years old. So the notion of, of giving that now and in two months saying, oh yeah, I don't see anything. Of course you wouldn't see anything. Other issues that I have are that <clears throat> if you pop out these proteins in the cell membrane, they, they may pop out right next to normal cell proteins. And if they do, um, and this is more for mom, um, as her immune system reads it, it seems possible that in generating an immune reaction to that, it may incorporate one of our own normal proteins which brings in the question of generating autoimmune diseases down the road, which again, wouldn't be typically seen for years. But back to the fetus, if now you have these proteins going through the, the cells, now in a, a fetus, again, you have the placenta, which is a great barrier to many things, drugs, pathogens, but these lipids will pass through that. Another barrier is the blood-brain barrier. I tell you yeah. what, let's hold up on that and begin with the blood-brain barrier when we come back from our pause. This is Dr. Lee for America, and we're going to take just a short break, and we'll be right back with Voice of a Nation and talk about what happens if the COVID spike proteins from the vaccine start crossing the blood-brain barrier. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As we celebrate our five-year anniversary, 
America Out Loud has expanded its mission through a newly designed website with a host of new contributors, all carrying a vibrant message of hope and survival for this country we love. AmericaOutloud.com. Together, we'll secure the future for generations to come. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Welcome back to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee, your Team Nation host for Malcolm, here with our guest, Dr. Richard Blumrick, who is a maternal fetal medicine specialist trained at Duke in a maternal fetal medicine fellowship, and now chair of OBGYN at a major Southwestern hospital. Welcome back, Dr. Blumrick. Thank you. We were talking before the break about the placenta and the fetus getting exposed to the spike protein. So what happens? Tell us about what you mean by the blood-brain barrier and what that does and what is the problem if these spike proteins cross that barrier? Okay, well, we have a systemic system Uh, with an immune system that runs our whole body, but our brain is special. We let very few things enter our brains, the very certain foods and and, uh, again, uh, pathogens don't typically get into the brain. Most times when we get sick, those things are not getting into our brain. There's a pretty good barrier, but things that do get through are these lipids. So general anesthesia are usually a lipid-based anesthesia to be general to get into the brain. So again, it brings up the question of these lipid vectors for the COVID vaccine. Could they be transferring these messenger RNA to neural cells? And so now you got these neurons making billions of spike proteins in an area which has even less immunity. Fetus overall has none, but the brain has even less than an adult. Now, what's going to happen to all these spike proteins if you, if you, how do you deal with them? And that's a question because we know in adults that proteins that do not get properly metabolized and folded correctly and eliminated can be, can coalesce and form what's called Lewy bodies. And Lewy bodies are associated with dementia. There are other proteins that are foreign proteins that, that somehow cross the blood-brain barrier, which most don't, but some that have are called prions, and they've been associated with neurodegenerative diseases like Crutchfeld-Jacobs disease and mad cow disease. So again, why would you expose a fetus to the potential of having these things go there when it's really not clear how a fetus would metabolize these spike proteins. They typically are a very irritating protein, which initiates an inflammatory response and blood clots. Um, so I, I, I don't understand why anybody would recommend risking this because we don't have answers to that. 
when the natural disease of the virus doesn't cross the placenta and the moms don't do any worse and there are treatments even if you do get it. So I think it's reckless for the CDC personally to have made these recommendations, which is totally bizarre because they typically always err on caution. They exclude pregnant women from trials for a reason. They just don't want to risk any potential thing happening. Uh, most drugs, they, they, they are very reluctant to prescribe anything to pregnant women. I see a lot, a lot of patients in my practice, even to get a dental procedure, you got to be clear. They want to make sure these medicines don't hurt the fetus. But here, without anything, and not even like animal studies on pregnancy, and yet they cavalierly have made this recommendation. And I have no uh, comprehension of how they can do that. Well, actually, I, I find it totally incomprehensible as you do. And in fact, I, I find it a stunning violation of our normal medical ethics and even some of the FDA warnings that have been existing on other medications for yeah. years that have a far better known safety profile than these experimental agents that were released to the public and for dispensing to the public after the clinical trials had only run for two months. And I think that is one of the most dangerous approaches that I've seen certainly in my medical career and essentially over the course of my lifetime. I agree. And uh, it's disheartening because I don't understand it at all. And they don't even use the typical medical dialogue of, 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 peer review questions with hard questions and, and be and do no harm uh, rather than just let's see what happens and give it. Um, I, I think there are theoretical concerns for these COVID lipid vaccines. Uh, I don't see that the risk during pregnancy justifies these risks of, of taking the, the COVID shot. And now you're dealing with a kid who has a whole lifetime ahead of it. If you have developmental issues, developmental delays on the autistic spectrum, um, I, I don't know how that would reverse over time. And yet we may not know that for four years. Well, I think you're exactly right. And one of the things that, that is so staggering also, when you think about it, normally, what do we hear with all of the medication advertising direct to the consumer on television? At the end <laughs> of every warning is a statement, consult your doctor to see if right. this is appropriate for you. And what, what is happening is that the doctor, the physician, you, the expert in maternal fetal medicine are being pushed aside discounted and cut out of the equation to discuss the risk benefit relationship for a given patient that you know well, and they're encouraged to walk into these walk-in centers in grocery stores and pharmacies and schools. And now they're putting them in churches in New York state with it's this incredible, absolutely mind boggling. There is no warning given to the public in any of the 
mass advertising and this advertising campaign is just through the roof and and unlike any I've ever seen in nowhere do they say talk with your physician about the risk for you as an individual you're absolutely right and even on those commercials they talk 100 miles an hour at the end could be risk of clotting blah blah blah, 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 blah really quickly but regarding the covid it seems to be oh it's great it's safe take it and i don't know that they can make those conclusions um and i don't know why they would do that especially in pregnancy i can see selectively having groups that are at risk morbidly obese um native americans chronic lung renal hepatic disease where you may really run the risk of, of dying if you get it. it. You, again, like any other medicine, evaluate the risks and the benefits. Take the whole biopsychosocial economic profile of the patient and the potential risks of the therapy and see if it's worth it for them individually. And uh, have them make an informed decision. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. it's bizarre because I do this every day with everything else from a blood pressure medicine to seizure medicine. Uh, I see patients that docs refer because they have medical conditions and they get pregnant and it's okay to continue this medicine and what's the potential effect. And then I could spend over an hour sometimes going over the literature on what we know and what we don't know regarding the certain seizure medicine and pregnancy. And yet nothing's happening with these lipid COVID vaccines. Well, also, what many people don't realize is that if we start really analyzing the data on the vaccine adverse events, what <laughs> is happening is that the very people that you just listed that might be at risk of higher complications if they got COVID during pregnancy, now that's if they didn't get early treatment, are the same ethnic groups and medical condition risk groups that also are having markedly higher adverse events with the vaccines because of the same reason. The vaccines are generating the yeah. spike protein and the inflammatory and blood clotting problem that the COVID virus does. Yep. Um, I think our listeners can understand that both of us as physicians are taking a deep breath in total <laughs> shuddering concern and shock that that our public health officials are doing something that is a 180 degree departure from anything we've ever done in medicine. Indeed, one other thing I'd like to say is typically when a drug <clears throat> goes through the FDA to get approval, uh, it goes through theoretical trials and chemical trials and in vitro trials and animal trials, and then they do some human subjects. But even when everything looks good, it's not a mass distribution. They typically allocate it to certain docs at certain facilities. They have a strict criteria of which patients qualify to get the medicine. And this was done with remdesivir, which is a drug treatment used for COVID. But it wasn't a mass distribution that any doc could write for it. It was released in limited amounts at certain facilities. And the reason is because when they would give it to a patient, they would record every complication, every side effect. You had diarrhea, you had a rash, you had a headache, 
you had a blood clot, you got a Guillain-Barre, everything was listed, which is the only way you really know about the complications. And so then you could take the list and the frequency of those complications, compare it to that population and those that didn't take the medicine, and you could make an educated comparison and say, oh, okay, look at this GI increase. There were some blood clots that those that took the medicine versus those that didn't. And you could say, well, how, how much, how many had the blood clots? What's the increased risk, relative risk. But with this having CVS and schools and everybody, even regular docs, just giving it and their nurses giving it, they're not tracking it. So patients, and I've come across quite a number that have had blood clots, that have died, that have had strokes, that have had aneurysms, rupture, and almost every time their doc who they present to just, oh, they treat the medical condition and they assume it's unrelated to the vaccine. But you can't make that assumption. Maybe it is unrelated, but maybe it isn't. But the only way you'd know is by tracking it. And I'd have to tell you, most docs I know don't even know how to go on the VAERS reporting system. So those that typically deal with new drugs with a new patient under research uh, uh, settings know the VAERS and they're filled out. But I think the VAERS are so underreported because a lot of these complications that are occurring are not reaching VAERS. And I would hypothesize that maybe 1% of the real complication rates are even being reported. So when I they say, oh, right. yeah, millions of these people have gotten the shot and there's only six people have had strokes, baloney. I've known six people that have had strokes and CVAs that have gotten the shot within days to weeks. Um, so I know that's totally underreported. Well, there was a 2010 study from Harvard University that looked closely at the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, and they carefully analyzed the data and in a variety of in-depth ways and reported in that paper that they concluded that, the, that there was only about 1% of the adverse events that actually did get reported. So that paper from 10 years ago, 11 years ago, fits exactly what you're saying now. And right now, part of the other problem that limits the accuracy of the reporting is that I find that so many, now I have been immersed in all of this information with a team of 400 physicians from around the world for the last 14 months, but I'm finding that most of the primary care doctors for my own patients don't know anything about the very issues that we're discussing because oh. all they've heard is what's coming from the CDC. Yeah. So that's an even bigger risk in terms of trying to get accurate data. If they don't know that it's linked and the patients don't know, then there's no way that you can have act accurate reporting. Exactly. So by them alleged, assuming that the complication risks are low, it's a false assumption. It's underreported. Exactly right. And, th and that comes to another one that I think is urgent for us to talk about tonight, because I, I personally have had patients in my practice. I, I tend to see older women rather than the group you see. 
So many of them will have daughters who are pregnant. And I'm shocked at how many early miscarriages and even well-established pregnancies, second and third trimester of women who've gotten the vaccine while pregnant following the CDC saying it's okay, they get the vaccine and suddenly within a day or two or three, the first week after the vaccine, they've had a miscarriage. Could you comment on that? Because I think you and I both realize there are a number of mechanisms that would explain that, but I'd like for you to try and explain that for our listeners to understand there really is science that explains how that could occur. Yes, and there does seem to be an increased reporting of miscarriages. And when they've tracked it, it seems to be a 24-fold increase in first trimester miscarriages. Now, theoretically, to me, that makes sense because the fetus, you have to remember, is half dead. So its cellular antigens on the surfaces are half dead. Now, if I take dad's kidney and put it into mom, everyone would realize, well, yeah, mom's going to reject that kidney. So it's unique in pregnancy that here we have a fetus that's half dead, but the physiology of pregnancy walls off the fetal compartment. So it's hidden from mom's immune system. So this was a problem. Again, if you get viral antigens into that fetal compartment, mom's totally hidden from it. Let me he just has no immune system. help our listeners here, Dr. Blumrick. When you say the, the fetus is walled off in a separate compartment, so it's hidden from mom, what he's talking about, everyone, is that the, we can't have the baby that's developing that's part mother and part father in genetic makeup. We can't have that risk being intermingled with the mother's immune system because like a kidney transplant that Dr. Blumrick mentioned, the mother would reject the baby, which is one of the reasons that triggers miscarriages. And, and, and I think that's really important. Right. So something unique happens at the interface of the placenta and the lining of the uterus, um, which we call the decidua, just to put a word out there, but it's just that where mom cells and the kid cells interact, that immune system is toned down and is toned down out of necessity. So mom is not rejecting and attacking the fetus. Now, if you're putting in these lipid messenger RNA, running all these spike proteins at that interface, and why wouldn't it go there as opposed to everywhere else in your body? Now you're generating inflammatory spike proteins at that very interface that you're trying to tone down. So it makes complete sense to me that you're hyping up an immune response at an area that you're trying to tone down the immune response, which now results in an increase in miscarriages. It makes perfect sense to me. I, I mean, I, I'm not an OBGYN. I'm internal medicine. I've done a lot of work in women's health and studying endocrine reproductive medicine because I'm interested in it and it helps my patients in other ways. This absolutely makes sense. And all of this generation of inflammation and blood clotting, thrombogenic, these, these spike proteins attack the platelets, they increase the thromboxane response, they increase the risk of forming blood clots. That's the virus itself and the vaccines. And when you add that dimension, by and, and make the lipid 
covering that gets it across these natural barriers, the placenta and the brain, you're just opening up Pandora's box of damage that, that we can't even begin to predict. Those are my concerns. Well, they're valid. And I, I think our listeners are very grateful that they have heard your reasoned, calm, knowledgeable, direct explanation of just exactly what is happening, what are the differences with other vaccines, and what are the risks. I had one, uh, one expert in another field of medicine tell me recently, well, we really may want to, we have, we have to go ahead and think about the importance of giving the vaccines to pregnant women because they can get really sick and die. Well, true. But if you treat early, as you and I both said, and if you have the data from all of the pregnant women you've seen that COVID doesn't affect them as badly as influenza can, then it absolutely, to me, I can't think of any situation when I would recommend a pregnant woman get this vaccine. I agree. And all those potential treatments that you would give a patient early on are safe in pregnancy. Vitamin D, vitamin C, cortisone, hydroxychloroquine. I've been giving that for 20 years to patients with lupus and autoimmune diseases in pregnancy with no consequence to the fetus or mom. Uh, I must have given over a thousand doses uh, in my practice over this. So the notion that it's going to give you a heart disease is unfounded. So we know more actually of hydroxychloroquine than we do of the COVID vaccine. And that's what's so tragic because a safe, effective medicine that's been used worldwide for 65 years in billions of doses in all age groups and pregnancy, as you pointed out, even on the CDC website, it addresses that very point and says on the CDC website under treatment for malaria that hydroxychloroquine is safe for pregnant women and nursing mothers. And it decreases inflammation. So if the mother is exposed to COVID, having hydroxychloroquine on board dampens down the very inflammatory response that you just said causes the problems for the the fetus and the placental barrier and the blood-brain barrier. So it actually has that additional benefit in addition to decreasing the viral multiplication and spread. Right. I don't know if that crosses the blood-brain barrier, but it it definitely helps uh, the treatment of COVID in symptomatic patients. And And I can attest the safety, long-term safety that we have many studies of many patients over many years in many countries that have taken it for various reasons where we don't really have anything on these newborns that are getting vaccinated over the last five months um, on what their outcomes are going to be when they go into school and are they going to do well in math and trigonometry? Are they going to make friends? Are they going to be able to have a family and associate well? What are their behavior risks? have no clue. I know. It's, it's truly alarming. And, and as I said at the beginning, these children 
that are developing now, the, the ones that are in, in the uterus developing and the, the infants, all, all our future. And here we are jeopardizing their lives and, and the individual, but we're also jeopardizing our society if we create widespread damage. There's, you know, Dr. Blumerick, there's another question as we've only got about five minutes left that I really would, would like for you to address. And that's the question. I think the marketing of the vaccines has, has really emphasized vaccine immunity is so great and natural immunity isn't that good. And that flies in the face of mother nature and common sense. Could you comment and explain to our listeners why natural immunity may be actually better? Sure, that's an excellent question. So if, if one gets exposed to the natural COVID virus, that's composed of many proteins. So you potentially are exposed to all these viral proteins and you could make antibodies to any single one and you actually make it to all of them. Now, they found that the spike protein happens to be the most immunogenic. So that causes the biggest immune response. So their strategy with these vaccines is to say, well, let's take the biggest immune response triggering one and make messenger RNAs. It'll make billions of these spike proteins so that you have billions of excess spike proteins that are really immunogenic. So you're going to mount a vigorous immune response to it. So that's the theory behind it. And I could go along with that theory overall, just that being said. But if now we, we're realizing that there are new strains already. There's a South African strain, a Brazilian strain. And what's different about those different COVID strains? Well, it happens to be the spike protein variations. So that happens to be the most likely mutable part of the COVID virus. So if you make an antibody to this strain, and now another one mutates it, and that spike protein is a little different, that anybody we have may or may not react with that new spike protein. So if it doesn't, then you may have no immunity or only partial immunity to that new strain. However, if you've been exposed to the natural virus, you have multiple antibodies to all the types of proteins. So now if you change one of those, you still have antibodies that'll react to all the others. So it's a more comprehensive protection over different strains than this COVID one is just to a specific protein uh, of this version of the spike protein. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. And, and there's another myth that's being presented that natural immunity only lasts a few months. We, we actually have data from 17 years ago when SARS-CoV-1 broke out and though that virus has shares 78 to 80% of the same viral DNA genome, we call it, that is what we see in SARS-CoV-2. And to date, and Dr. Peter McCullough has analyzed the world data on this, to date, there have been no cases of recurrent SARS-CoV-1 infections in people who had the infection 17 years ago. So we know that that virus, which is almost the same as SARS-CoV-2, except for about 20% 
of the viral genome, those people are still immune 17 years later. So it's, it's fallacious to say to people that natural immunity is short lived. People who had mumps have, have immunity the rest of their life. What do you tell mm-hmm. pregnant women or parents who are thinking about having a family? Do you advise them to get a mumps vaccine again if they had mumps as a child? Absolutely not, because you get a hyper response, which uh, can get a cytokine storm and have more inflammation and problems. If you have had COVID and you get the vaccine. I, I, I would not recommend getting a COVID. One, I, I don't think in pregnancy the rewards justify the risks. But even outside of pregnancy, if one has had COVID infection, they're not a good candidate to get a COVID vaccine unless there are other extenuating circumstances. Well, I thank you for making common sense out of common confusion. And this I think has been an extraordinarily valuable evening. I'm grateful after a long busy day taking care of patients that you were willing to spend this time to be with us on Voice of a Nation. You're welcome. And this will go to podcast. It'll be available to be shared with your friends in about a few days. So stay tuned, come back, share it with your friends. Let's get loud and help others understand some of the risks that the media and our public health agencies are not talking about. Thank you for listening tonight. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Blumrick. This is Dr. Lee for America your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm, signing off for tonight. It is time to get loud. It is time to get involved. It is time to stand up and speak out. This is your life, your health, and your freedom. Don't be silent anymore. Let's speak out and get loud on America Out Loud to make the world a better place. The heart and soul of a nation beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul, the challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to the second hour of Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm. And we're talking today in a, in a continuation from our first hour with our maternal fetal medicine specialist. We're now talking with a world-class reproductive immunologist and specialist in hematology, oncology, and reproductive immunology. This is Dr. Raphael Stricker and Ladies and gentlemen, I don't think you could find a more qualified person to talk with me in our concerns about clarifying the confusion 
over the safety of the COVID-19 experimental vaccines in pregnant women. Dr. Stricker is a member of the American Society for Reproductive Endocrinology, the American Federation for Medical Research, the American Society of Microbiology, and the American Society of Hematology. This is an incredible background to be talking with you to give you information that you're not getting from our public health officials. He is the recipient of the American Medical Association Award for Physician Excellence and an Outstanding Reviewer Award from the Annals of Internal Medicine, some of our most prestigious medical organizations in the United States. Dr. Stricker has authored over 200 medical journals, letters, and abstracts. In addition, his research interests include immunological abortion. And for our lay audience, that refers to spontaneous miscarriages that are triggered by immune system reactions. The very critical question that faces every pregnant woman who is considering, do I get this vaccine or not? Now, you heard Dr. Bloomrick talk about the reasons that the COVID vaccine, speaking as an OBGYN, <clears throat> the reasons that the COVID vaccine is very different in safety issues from what we usually do in pregnancy for whooping cough vaccines and flu vaccines. He also explained very clearly how COVID is a very different illness in terms of its risk for pregnant women. It is a very low risk viral illness for pregnant women. Influenza is a higher risk viral illness for pregnant women. And he clarified all of that in the first hour. If you missed our first hour, please go and listen to that on podcast. It's critically important. It will help give you the broader perspective that leads into the science that we'll be talking about in our second hour. Dr. Stricker also is one of our leading physicians in our COVID-19 coalition of international experts. We have all been working together. I've been honored to be on this team and learn from Dr. Stricker and all of the others like Dr. McCullough, whom you can hear every week on the McCullough Report on the America Out Loud platform. And Dr. Stricker has been guiding many of us physicians as we seek to understand the COVID illness, the safety of early treatment, and the safety of both treatment and vaccination questions in pregnancy. I, I can't be more pleased to have someone of his stature and credentials. He received his medical degree and specialty training in internal medicine from Columbia University in New York, and then did subspecialty training in immunology and immunotherapy at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. He is currently the medical director of the Allen E. Beer Medical Center for Reproductive Immunology in Los Gatos, California. Welcome to our show today, Dr. Stricker. I am just honored that you could make time in your busy schedule to share with us 
your knowledge and insights to help bring common sense out of confusion and chaos. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lee. It's a pleasure to be here. It's absolute pleasure to have you. I'd, I'd like to continue the discussion we were having with Dr. Bloomrick from the maternal fetal medicine OBGYN standpoint to, to open the floor for you to discuss with our listeners some of the very serious issues that these experimental vaccines and, and their different technology and the platform they're used with, with messenger RNA. Talk to us about some of the serious issues facing pregnant women and some of your concerns about vaccinating that group when they were excluded from the clinical trials. Well, I'm, I'm sure the previous speaker had some very detailed uh, arguments uh, against using this vaccine, but the way I see it is probably a lot more simple. And basically it's because we haven't had enough time to evaluate these vaccines in pregnant women. I mean, there hasn't really been any evaluation in pregnant women. For the flu vaccines, it took five to 10 years to get those approved for use in pregnancy. And we don't have anything like that uh, for, for the COVID vaccines. And I think that's a huge problem. Um, and it, it's very hard to discuss this issue because there's virtually nothing in the medical literature about it uh, one way or the other yet. Um, so, so a lot of what I'm gonna say today is based on very you know, minimal data and, and conjecture based on that data. And that's not a good place to be in medicine. You really want more certainty and more evidence when you, do when you give recommendations, medical recommendations. And for using COVID vaccines in pregnancy, we just don't have that. Well, we not only don't have the data, as you said, which I find staggering that the CDC would even consider encouraging pregnant women to take this risk. But we also, from a medical ethics standpoint, from FDA regulatory control of other medications, where there are all types of warnings about medications and safety in pregnancy, and some have black box warnings, all of that was based on years of data and experience to come up with the warnings for medications in pregnancy in general. That's always been our practice. So to extrapolate two months of safety data in a very narrow group of healthy non-pregnant participants who were female in the clinical trials to the safety of children and pregnant women is just something we've never seen in the history of my medical career. I would like for you to give some basic discussion for our listeners to help understand exactly how this vaccine works, what your concerns are based on the science of immunology in, in using such a vaccine in pregnancy. Well, there's, uh, first of all, you have to look at the different vaccines, and there are four of them that have been used so far. Um, two of them are so-called mRNA vaccines, the ones from Pfizer and Moderna, uh, giving a piece of genetic information to our cells and having the cells produce an antibody that reacts to, to the virus. Um, 
The other two types of vaccines from uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca are based uh, more on viral vectors. So there's a harmless virus that carries a piece of the COVID virus into the cells, and then your cells make antibodies in response to that. Um, uh, and, and that's a more conventional type of vaccine that's been used to make other vaccines. Um, the problem with um, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines is that we've never had a vaccine for humans that was made that way. So we know absolutely nothing about the safety of those vaccines. Um, and to give an experimental vaccine like that to, to pregnant women or, or anybody really um, is a very risky kind of endeavor. Um, now, there are two issues driving, um, I think this whole um, process, especially with pregnant women. The two issues are, first of all, fear. There's a huge amount of fear. Everybody's afraid of this virus. They're afraid it's gonna kill them. And that really clouds people's judgment and makes them do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And on the other side of the, the issue, there's what I like to call vaccine mania, that you know, we think that the only way to approach this disease is by using vaccines. And that sort of, that's the public has sort of been sold on that concept. So that combination of fear and vaccine mania creates a situation where we're using experimental vaccines to treat patients who should never get an experimental vaccine. I mean, if you're pregnant, the last thing you want is an experimental uh, treatment that could affect both yourself and your baby. And I think that that's, that's the biggest problem with using these vaccines in pregnancy. Well, I think you're exactly right. And one of the, as you and I both well know, because we've been involved in the whole coalition of doctors that are treating patients early for COVID in the first five, four or five days of symptoms and finding that we've been extraordinarily successful keeping people out of the hospital. And most of us treating that quickly either haven't had any deaths or have had less than 1%. So it, it is the, your key point here that vaccine mania driving the focus on vaccine as the only solution is a huge issue for the public of all age groups because we have old FDA approved long safety record medicines that combine in a multi-drug cocktail like we use for other diseases, cancer and AIDS come to mind, that, that works really well. And these are already FDA approved for other uses and doctors know how to use them. We use them every day. And that whole pillar of early treatment we use in every other disease that every physician day-to-day -day treats has been totally blocked out as if it is a black box that doesn't exist. And that has been the biggest problem and that what, that's what drives the fear. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, and look at other diseases like, you know, AIDS or malaria, uh, where we don't have vaccines. I mean, we've been trying to make vaccines for, for decades and, and haven't succeeded. So in those diseases, if we just hung all our hopes on a vaccine, we would be in terrible shape. Now, fortunately for those diseases, we do have treatments 
that uh, can be given that work extremely well, that doctors are used to get to giving, as you say. And, and it's really terrible that we haven't applied those uh, principles to, to COVID. Um, there are lots of options for treatment of this disease. And instead, all we're hearing about is vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And I think that's really a mistake uh, to, to depend on an, uh, you know, an experimental treatment as the only way out of something is a huge mistake in medicine. Well, it also has been a, an extraordinarily costly mistake. It has been costly in terms of the tragedy of the lives lost who were denied early treatment. The costs, however, are much broader than that. The costs are businesses that have closed, families that have been broken apart with loss of income, loss of family structure, loss of their church community, loss of the and loss of family members who died, but also that has led to an increased social cost of domestic violence, alcoholism, drug abuse, obesity, lack of treatment for other diseases. So the, the social, psychological, and spiritual cost of this, this linear focus and push on vaccines has been so extraordinarily high that I don't think we'll be able to even calculate the damage realistically. So I, I think your message is critical, but let me ask you this. Could we come back to the specific issues of pregnancy and what happens when you inject a experimental vaccine designed to trigger a major massive inflammatory response with potential for triggering blood clots. What happens when you inject that in pregnancy? And let's talk about your experience with the immunological causes of spontaneous miscarriage. So one of the hats that I wear is as medical director of the Allen E. Beer Medical Center for Reproductive Immunology. And we treat women with recurrent pregnancy loss and pregnancy failure, often for reasons that are not well understood or appreciated. Um, Dr. Beer, who founded the center, was a visionary who was able to see um, immune processes that interfere with pregnancy. And so a lot of the treatment that we do is aimed at those processes that occur in women and cause a pregnancy loss. Um, now, those kind of immune processes are exactly what could happen when you give a vaccine that's experimental and that we don't really understand completely. So for instance, giving uh, genetic material from a virus to a woman who's pregnant could potentially affect both herself and, and her baby. The genetic material could cause inflammation that, um, that interferes with the pregnancy and with the fetus. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's really very difficult to um, condone that kind of treatment for uh, that's really experimental in a woman who's pregnant. Now, the other vaccines, interestingly, which are more conventional in a way, um, would theoretically be a better option for pregnancy. But what we've seen now is that those vaccines cause significant uh, clotting problems 
and, and thrombotic problems in patients who've taken them. And that would be something that would be catastrophic for a pregnant woman and for her baby. So again, even the most, the best understood vaccines that we have for COVID have dangers that are just uncharacterized that we don't understand. And to give those vaccines to pregnant women without any studies, without literally years of study like we've had for flu vaccines, uh, to do that, it's just, just makes no sense to me. Well, it doesn't make sense to, to any of us based on our medical tradition of avoiding every medication in pregnancy as much as possible. So I think just common sense in most, most Americans are quite intelligent when it comes to common sense things. And so it doesn't make common sense to them either that we're suddenly pushing this experimental agent in pregnancy when they've heard for their whole life. I mean, all you, every time you hear a drug announcement, a ad on television, there's always a disclaimer that it may not be safe for pregnancy. And there's always something that says, consult your doctor. And people are not even being advised to consult their physicians about their risk. But coming back to your point about the thrombotic or blood clotting uh, risk with the J&J &J vaccine and AstraZeneca, we also have data that Dr. McCullough has brought to our group that in some respects, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have a 30-fold higher risk of blood clot problems, thrombosis, than even J&J &J and AstraZeneca. As I recall from my medical school days and my work in women's health, not as an OB, women who are pregnant have a higher risk of blood clots and DVTs anyway. So could you speak to that? That's absolutely true. I mean, we've heard a lot about the J&J &J vaccine in particular, um, but all of these vaccines cause problems with clotting. It's just a matter of degree. And pregnancy is a, a hypercoagulable state, as they say, you do get excess blood clotting because the idea is, you know, you don't want to, you want to hold on to your, you know, to your blood for the, for the, for the sake of the baby. So um, that really is a recipe for disaster. If you're giving a vaccine, that's going to cause an excessive amount of blood clotting. And um, again, the problem here is that um, what we hear day in and day out is the drumbeat that there's only vaccines, only vaccines work. The only option is to take these vaccines. That's the only thing that'll keep you from getting COVID when you're pregnant. And we published a paper back in January that showed that that's absolutely not the case. There are a number of medications that have been used safely in pregnancy for decades uh, that can prevent significant infections in pregnancy. Um, and, and I think those options should be on the table and should be looked at. Now, one in particular, which has been very controversial, of course, is hydroxychloroquine, uh, which was the subject of some, frankly, fraudulent studies that, that showed it didn't work for COVID. But in fact, looking at a lot of the data, um, there's evidence that, that it does work to prevent serious infection with coronavirus. And hydroxychloroquine has been used for, like I said, for decades in pregnancy to prevent malaria. It works extremely well in that situation. It does not cause complications in pregnancy. 
And why aren't we looking at hydroxychloroquine for pregnant women as opposed to using an experimental vaccine? It makes no sense to throw aside medication that's FDA approved, that's been used for decades, that's completely safe, and instead give a pregnant woman something that could, could cause serious problems, both for herself and her baby. Well, that's exactly right. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because Dr. Blumrick said in the first hour that he has personally been using hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy for over 20 years to continue treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, any risk of malaria, and there are some other conditions. What is fascinating, if you look at the truth about hydroxychloroquine, we have data going back 40 years showing its effectiveness to improve glucose control and hemoglobin A1C in diabetics. And what's one of the risks of, di of pregnancy but gestational diabetes? Mm -hmm. So hydroxychloroquine to treat a viral infection in pregnancy not only has been shown for at least 50 years to be safe in pregnancy itself, but it also has the very benefits that actually help reduce other risk in pregnancy. Does that fit with what you have been studying on it? Absolutely. I mean, the other thing about hydroxychloroquine, which isn't really appreciated a lot of the time, is that hydroxychloroquine has one of the longest half-lives of any medication known to man, which means it stays in your body for something like 40 days. And that makes it an excellent drug for prophylaxis to prevent infection because it hangs around and it prevents the virus from getting into your system for a long time. So you don't even have to take it every day the way that patients with rheumatologic diseases like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis do, where you need a much higher level to treat these autoimmune diseases. You can take hydroxychloroquine once a week, which is the standard prophylactic dose for malaria and it seems to work just fine to prevent, um, to prevent coronavirus infection in that situation. Um, so we really should be looking at a drug like that. Now, the problem, of course, with hydroxychloroquine is that it's, it's generic, it's dirt cheap, nobody's going to make any money off it, nobody's going to push the drug, no, no big drug company like Pfizer or Moderna or AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson is going to push that drug because there's no profit in it for them. But that's exactly the reason why it's the kind of thing we should be using in pregnancy, not just in the US, but around the world to protect pregnant women from the complications of, of COVID. Well, it, that is well said. The other aspect that ties in with what you said is that the very groups, ethnic groups that are at highest risk for COVID that are at highest risk for complications in pregnancy, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, people of the ethnic group from India, all of those ethnic groups are at highest risk for both COVID illness, pregnancy complications like diabetes and blood clotting. And when you have a safe medicine that has been used worldwide in all of those ethnic groups for 65 years, it, it actually is, to me, it's, it borders on malfeasance to 
block access to that medicine in pregnancy and push them into an experimental agent. Absolutely. I mean, hydroxychloroquine is colorblind. It's been used in Africa. It's been used in Southeast Asia and the jungles of Central America. If you go to the jungle of Central America to take a, take a little trek, that's the medication you would use to prevent you from getting you know, a fatal case of malaria. So it's definitely you know, been used all over the world and without any regard to problems with ethnic groups. And it would be the drug of choice for those groups. Thank you. And that's a great place to take a brief break for our pause. And we will be right back with Voice of a Nation and our guest, Dr. Raphael Stricker, talking about vaccines and pregnancy in just a moment. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Hail, my fellow Americans. How did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. Find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the second half of the second hour of Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm. And we're talking today with Dr. Raphael Stricker, who is a reproductive immunologist, hematologist, and oncologist who has spent many, many years and much study and research on some of the causes of spontaneous miscarriages due to immunological conditions and disorders and is currently leading that effort in California, in Los Gatos, at his institute there. What I would like to come to this hour to segue from what our discussion was with Dr. Blomrick as an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist in the first hour is what are some of the specific concerns with the mRNA viruses being designed with a lipid coating 
that facilitates transport of the virus across the placenta and also across the blood-brain barrier. From your standpoint, what are some of the complications that we would expect to see with that unusual and novel character of these vaccines that we haven't had in other vaccines? Well, well, again, Dr. Lee, you know, you're asking questions that have no answers because we just haven't had enough time to study these vaccines, the RNA vaccines. And let me just say one thing, by the way, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, he's an anti-vaxxer, you know, he doesn't believe in vaccines. I believe absolutely and completely in the, uh, the benefit of vaccines that have been adequately tested for a sufficient period of time. I think that they're a tremendous benefit to society. And I, I, would, I, I vaccinated my kids. Um, I think that vaccines are fantastic. But here we're talking about an experimental group of vaccines that hasn't had that kind of testing. And I think that's the biggest problem. Now, to get back to your question, um, we don't know what happens to these, vac these, these vaccines. I mean, there's the companies say that it doesn't get transported into the nucleus of the cell and therefore it doesn't cause problems there. However, there's a very recent study out of Harvard that shows that cells have something called reverse transcriptase, which is this enzyme that can reproduce, that, that can take RNA and, and, and um, transform it into DNA, which then can go into the cell nucleus and get into your genetic material. And that may or may not be a disaster. I mean, that's kind of how HIV works. You know, it has the RNA that gets converted to DNA that gets into your genes. And then seven years later, you come down with AIDS. So this is a huge concern. And um, I don't think we know anything about this. Um, so far, we're going on the, the say-so of these uh, vaccine makers who say, well, no, it really doesn't last long enough to do that. It's not a problem. But the bottom line is, we just don't know. Well, when we don't know something that is so major, it would seem to me that common sense again would say, don't do it until we have more information. But you know, what else is, is, is brought up, at, and Dr. Blumrick mentioned this, we know these vaccines are designed, I mean, that's how they work. They are designed to trigger the body to make more of the spike protein to as part of the immune response. If I'm explaining it in layman's language and still being correct, then what, I, what that raises the question, which I'd like you to address is, okay, if the vaccines are triggering inflammation to generate the immune response, generate antibody production, and part of that process is generating spike proteins so that our body will know what that is and get develop the antibodies. Well, then I have to ask the question, it's the spike protein on the coronavirus for the illness that's causing all the damage of inflammation and blood clotting. So doesn't that trigger if the vaccine is designed to make these spike, have our body make these spike proteins, doesn't that make a problem for the woman that could be as bad as or worse than the illness itself? Oh, absolutely. And I think that may be what's happened with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in patients who got you know, serious clotting problems from that vaccine. Um, 
and again, we don't know what the genetic makeup is of people who get that. Maybe there's something in their genetic makeup that causes more problems in handling the spike protein that causes the spike protein to cause more blood clots and to cause more problems than in the rest of the population. So again, if we had five to 10 years to study this problem, we would probably figure out what it is that makes certain individuals incredibly susceptible to these complications, but we've had five months barely. And so we just don't know what, uh, you know, how this works. Now I can tell you that in my practice with um, recurrent miscarriage with um, reproductive immunology, we certainly look at those factors in women who've had recurrent miscarriage because there are certain genetic factors that cause excess blood clotting that can, can ruin a pregnancy. Um, so certainly those kind of factors may be uh, important with these vaccines as well in the subset of, of women who have that uh, and who are getting vaccinated during pregnancy. Well, that and many of our listeners have probably heard of some of these factors. I know in most of my patients, when there's a concern about a family history of blood clotting, and I'm working with women who may need uh, significant hormone management, birth control pills, and menopausal ones, when there's a family history of blood clotting, then I'm usually checking for factor five laden deficiency and I'm or the mutation and the protein C and protein S mutations. And there's none of that going on. No, in fact, no one's even advising the patients who are pregnant to check for something as basic as natural immunity. If we've got, as Dr. Norchasm has pointed out in other shows I've done, if we've got a third of the American population that's been exposed to COVID through the pandemic, and then we've got others that have been ill or exposed, then why don't we do something as basic as check for natural immunity and then target the vaccination process to those who are not already immune? And certainly in pregnancy, we should be making this part of the pre-pregnancy testing like we test for others. Well, those are very reasonable suggestions. And it is unfortunate that we don't do this um, in, with the vaccines. And again, I think it's fear and vaccine mania, and that sort of clouds our judgment of these factors that are significant for you know, causing complications with the vaccine. Now in pregnancy, you know, we usually don't do this kind of testing unless a woman has had recurrent miscarriages and usually at least three miscarriages because prior to that, it's not considered that important. But we certainly look at things like factor V Leiden. We look at uh, the MTHFR mutations, which are very important in, in pregnancies that are, uh, that are lost. And things like the PAI1 mutation, which is another genetic mutation that can cause excess blood clotting. And there are a number of others as shown by Dr. Kulam when she was in okay. Chicago um, that are significant problems in, in terms of uh, excess blood clotting in pregnancy. Why aren't we looking at that with the COVID vaccines? Nobody cares. I mean, if you have vaccine mania, you know, why do you care about blood clotting until we get enough problems with it to, to sort of get people's attention? But up till now, we haven't reached that point. Well, and you say 
nobody cares except the families who've lost loved ones. Right. The tragedy of losing your baby within hours or a day or two after getting the vaccine, that's a devastating blow. And to Dr. Norchasm in our some of our earlier discussions has made the point quite beautifully, eloquently, and powerfully from a medical ethics perspective and a Judeo-Christian perspective of our core values that we have to balance our approaches for the benefit of the majority against mitigating risk or reducing risk for the minority. And if we're not even doing screening to look for who is at risk with the vaccines, then we are violating our most fundamental codes of medical ethics, but also our societal foundations upon which we've always been based. Our whole governmental structure is based upon finding ways to serve the good of all while protecting the risk to those who are more vulnerable. And who's more vulnerable than a baby in utero and a mother who's pregnant who is responsible, feeling responsibility for this new life. And they depend on us to be trustworthy in our information and to guide them. And when we don't know, they need us to say, we don't know, not give false assurance. Well, that's, I, I completely agree with that. <clears throat> but again, we're in a situation where we have a pandemic, we have people who are dying from this virus, uh, and then we have tremendous fear about getting this virus, and then we have vaccine mania. And that combination sort of precludes the kind of ethical considerations that you're talking about in a large number of physicians. I hate to say it, and, and certainly in the public, but in a large number of physicians, they just don't see it that way. You know, here we've got this vaccine, everybody says it's safe, well, just give it. And if you don't take it, then you're not a, a team player. You know, you're not, you're not playing ball and you're at risk and you're putting other people at risk. And that's a terrible thing to do. So that argument is, it's kind of what you hear. I hear that all the time now. And when my patients ask me, you know, well, what should I do in terms of the vaccine? I try to present them with both sides of the argument. You know, I try to say, look, you know, there is certainly a risk involved. And, and, but this is an experimental vaccine and you have to balance your risk versus you know, the risk of taking this experimental treatment. And I think that's all we can do for this at this point, other than just saying there are alternatives, but you know, nobody wants you to hear about them, which is really the biggest problem. Well, it is a big problem, but I think that's why you and I and other, so many others are working so hard to help present the alternatives, because the fact that someone, that the powers that be don't want the public to hear the alternatives doesn't mean that we don't have a moral and ethical duty to our patients and our community and our country and the future of our country to speak up and try to present them in a reasonable way based on many years of the safety data we do have so that is what you and I are doing in this show. And I think what your words are, are doing is to helping to at least 
have a calm voice for our listeners to understand that they don't have to rush into a decision on the vaccine and be pushed into a walk-in center, particularly if they're pregnant. They need to take time to make a decision balancing the risk versus potential benefit. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, And, you know, there are other risks of these vaccines that we haven't even touched on. I mean, one theory about infertility with these vaccines based on the fact that part of the coronavirus, uh, a piece of that virus looks like a part of the placenta. And if you make antibodies against the virus, you could be making antibodies against the placenta, which would be a disaster for pregnancy. So is that going to be a problem? Um, again, come back in five years and we'll find out when, when, people, when women who got this vaccine are infertile, then we'll know. And our business is going to be booming because they're going to be coming to see us, which I hope never happens. So, so, that, so there are other issues like that uh, that I think need to be worked out and we can only do it with time. We can't do it in you know, four or five months. It's not enough time. So you're making the point, which most of us in our coalition would agree with, that we should not be extending the mass vaccination to groups that were not studied, especially, and we should be taking more time to offer alternatives that are known to be safe while we are taking time to evaluate what is safe. You began to talk about the potential concern about fertility causing perhaps infertility later in women. I've also read that there may be aspects to the immunologic effects of the spike proteins generated by the vaccine to affect male sperm. Could you comment on that? Uh, That is a concern. Uh, There is a study, I believe, looking at male fertility after the vaccine. I'm not sure where that study is in terms of recruiting, but again, I don't think we're going to hear the results for quite some time. Um, And I haven't seen anything about uh, about male fertility with the vaccines, but it, it is a concern. There's also another concern about how parts of the spike protein could affect a tumor suppressor that's in certain cells. And it could actually knock out the tumor suppressor and therefore cause cancer. So that's another huge problem. It's all these studies are in the test tube so far. We don't have any evidence from clinical data, but I think that we we need to look at all that. It's very, it's kind of scary. Well, it 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 is quite frightening. Could you elaborate a little bit more about the, how the spike protein might affect the tumor suppressor mechanisms and proteins? Right. So, so there is some work about binding of the spike protein to the P53. It's called the P53 tumor suppressor. And when it does that, it inactivates the suppressor, which would then cause uh, you know, tumors to grow. And this is, again, all test tube data. It's the, there's nothing clinical about this, but it is, it does suggest that there could be something, a really bad complication of these vaccines in terms of, uh, in terms of malignancy, in terms of cancer. And again, with time, we'll hear a lot more about that, but we haven't had the time yet to see that. 
Well, that would explain to our listeners why those of us in our COVID coalition have been hearing from the oncologist in the group that many of our team is not recommending that their cancer patients take the risk of the experimental vaccines during their, certainly during their cancer treatment, as well as potentially following successful treatment, because right at that point, you want to maximize the chance of maintaining remission. What, right, I think that would be a, a very prudent course to do to try to avoid this in cancer patients. On top of that, cancer patients also have a um, an impaired immune system, so they don't really respond that well to the vaccines. And, and bringing that up, um, one of the other issues is, you know, everybody gets the vaccine and then it's now what? I can travel on planes and go everywhere. But the truth is we don't know how long the immunity from those vaccines lasts. And I can tell you that I've been looking at my patients who've been vaccinated. I've, I've only had about 14 of them so far. And in two of those patients, they didn't mount an antibody response. They had no antibody response to the vaccine. So either they didn't respond to the vaccine at all, or they had a response and then it disappeared over the two to three months since they had been vaccinated. So one of the big questions here is how long does this immunity from the vaccines last? And certainly in cancer patients who have impaired immunity, it may not last very long or at all. And even in normal patients, quote unquote, there may be a limited effect of these vaccines. And we may be seeing that now because we're hearing that there are these quote breakthrough infections, unquote, in people who are vaccinated. We don't know if that's because there are variants of the virus that aren't susceptible to the vaccine or because those people just didn't make a good response to the vaccine and to the virus. So that's a huge issue. And I'm sure we're gonna be hearing a lot more about that in the coming weeks and months. No, I think you're exactly right. And I also have seen that in my practice. I've not only seen a very high level of severe, potentially life-threatening reactions in some of in a number of my patients who've been vaccinated, I'm dealing with about 15 right now. And normally my practice is not a high volume practice. So for me to have that many patients this soon having arrhythmias, neurologic complications, blood clotting problems, uh, devastatingly uh, low platelets and other, and cancer flare ups all in, in the space of the last month is, is really quite overwhelming. But the, the other situation that, that I'm also encountering tied in with what you were saying is that I'm actually having some of my patients who were successfully in treatment or following treatment for cancer, whose oncologists are telling them that because their immune system is impaired, they should get this vaccine. And, and I'm just tearing my hair out because I'm not an oncologist but I have been studying with all of our team what the vaccines are doing and what the risks are. And I'm thinking, oh my heavens, how could we possibly tell them if your immune system is impaired, get the vaccine that is causing these intense reactions? And I think that's a good example of the dilemma that doctors face because 
obviously these oncologists are trying to do what's best for their patient, you know, to protect their patient with cancer. But in fact, they may be harming the patient by telling them to do this kind of treatment just because we don't know what it does. We just don't know. Well, for example, I, I just had a patient with idiopathic thrombocytopenia, 15 year history of that. And she got the vaccine and within a week, her platelets had plummeted to barely detectable. Could you comment on the mechanism for that? Yeah, we've seen similar um, events in patients who have um, low platelet counts and, and low um, cell counts in general in their blood. Um, I think that the vaccine creates an inflammatory response to some extent, that's how it works. And that's usually not a good thing for platelets. Platelets don't like inflammation. When there's inflammation, they kind of disappear. So I think that's probably what's happened in that situation. You created this inflammatory response to the vaccine and that made the platelet count plummet. Um, and we've seen that with other vaccines in patients who have the disease that you're describing, immune thrombocytopenia. Um, with vaccines, a lot of times getting a vaccine will make the platelet count go way down. Uh, it's a known complication of vaccines. So it's really not surprising that it would happen with, with these vaccines. Well, thank you for, for clarifying that. What are some of the types of testing that we might recommend to our listeners to ask their physicians about to help clarify if they have not had the vaccine, what are some tests that they might ask for to clarify their natural immunity or, for example, their risk for the particular effects of these vaccines? Yeah, that's a very important question. Uh, the, the test that's been available from day one pretty much is the COVID IgG test, so COVID antibody test. That's done by pretty much every lab in the country. Um, it's a simple test to do, and it shows whether you have antibody against the virus. And that antibody could be there because of the vaccine, but it could also be there because you've had other coronavirus infections. Coronaviruses cause the common cold, and they're they're usually, they usually come out during the winter and people get the, you know, colds and flu that are due to, um, to coronavirus, to other strains of coronavirus. So people who've had those uh, colds could have antibodies that cross-react with COVID. And so that's the kind of test that's the easiest to do. Now, we also have a new type of test called the T-detect test or T-cell test. Um, which shows a different kind of immunity to the coronavirus. It's a, a so-called cellular immune response. That is a much more durable response than the antibody response that, that I just talked about. Um, and, and there are labs now that are starting to do that kind of testing. It's not widely available. Uh, the only lab, in fact, I know that does it is LabCorp and I have nothing to do with LabCorp, so no connection, but I know that they do the test. And doing uh, that kind of testing would also show if you have um, some sort of immunity to the virus that would protect you against getting seriously ill with the virus. So IgG antibody tests and T cell detect tests are the kind of things that would be helpful to look at your immune response to the virus. Well, and interesting you bring up T detect. 
Uh, I actually have had that test. I recommend that my patients get the very test you're talking about. We're also, I'm also ordering for them the SARS-CoV-2 antibody to the nucleocapsid test, which is very specific for natural infection. And that has been very helpful in helping the patient and I make an informed decision as to what is in their best interest. If they're naturally immune, they are at higher risk of adverse events happening when you add the vaccine stimulation of the immune response on top of their existing natural immunity. The other test that's interesting, and what our listeners need to know about the T-Detect is that's an experimental test uh, issued under a emergency use authorization. So it tends not, it's not covered by insurance typically, and you can go online and order it yourself. And you then get a requisition that you take to several commercial laboratories, LabCorp is one, and that may have more broad access, but it's something that people can order for themselves. Are there any other tests, for example, that you would recommend that people ask their doctor about before they decide to pursue the vaccine? Other tests that might clarify their risk? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, risk is such a, has so many variables in this disease. I mean, obviously, if you have diabetes or, uh, or high blood pressure or obesity is a big risk factor, kidney disease, liver disease, those are all risk factors for, for getting serious COVID disease. Um, but, uh, but, you know, for younger patients who are healthy, um, now there was just this approval to vaccinate 12 to 18 year olds. I think that's personally, that's crazy because those are people, uh, you know, adolescents at very low risk of getting seriously ill, very low risk of transmitting the virus. Um, I don't see any reason to vaccinate uh, that group of individuals. So it's mostly other risk factors in older patients and, and you know, certainly older patients uh, are getting vaccinated. A lot of them have been already, and that's going to protect them. Um, so I don't know of any other um, real risk factors that you would look at uh, from a blood, you know, from blood test point of view, other than what we we just discussed. Well, I thank you for that. I, I was thinking possibly along the lines of people who might have had a family history of blood clotting disorders, that perhaps if they were consulting their physician ahead of getting the vaccine, they, there might be some of the screening for the risk factors you mentioned that increase the risk of thrombogenesis in response to the vaccine, such as the, the ones you mentioned earlier. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, if there's a family history of blood clotting, that's certainly a red flag. Um, and that's something that the patient should be aware of. Um, and the problem is these tests for blood, for excess blood clotting are really not very sophisticated and, and it's only, and we only have a handful of them. There's probably a lot more, uh, gene mutations that cause excess blood clotting. So we really can't test for all of those. And we can only test for a handful. If you're lucky enough to find that, that could be a risk factor, but you may not see anything. A lot of times you see nothing in that, in that regard. So 
it's hard to say what the risk is because of excess blood clotting. Well, thank you. And, you know, as we come to the close of our show today, I would just like to comment for our listeners that I think what Dr. Bloomrick, Dr. Norchasm, Dr. Stricker, and I are all saying, and Dr. McCullough has also been saying this, all of us are saying that it really is important for you to talk with your physician, go over your medical history, look at some of the testing available to screen for natural immunity, do some discussion on an individual basis with your physician instead of just walking into a grocery store vaccine center without fully understanding the risk when we're looking at these experimental agents. And I think that for our listeners who are many times just people out there trying to make sense out of all the chaos and confusion, that's a little common sense advice from those of us on the front line trying to help patients save lives and help you live a healthy and happy life. Thank you, Dr. Stricker. We really appreciate your being with us today. This has been a wonderful way to bring together some of the points that Dr. Blumrick made the first hour. And I look forward to doing some more interesting shows with you. Thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm signing off for today. This is your life, your health, your freedom at stake. Get involved, get loud, don't be afraid to speak up and help make the world around you a better place.